0: Thank you for listening to this BakerBots podcast. BakerBots has the experience, knowledge, and people to solve our clients' most significant legal issues. For more information on BakerBots practices, please visit us at bakerbots.com. This presentation is provided by BakerBots LLP for educational and informational purposes only. It is not legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship. Under the rules of certain jurisdictions, this communication may constitute attorney advertising.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Michael Loesch, and I'm excited to be with you today for another episode of the Energy Enforcement Insider, the podcast that provides quick hits on the latest trends and developments in regulatory compliance and enforcement matters impacting the energy industry. Along with me today, as always, is Brendan Quigley from New York. Brendan, how are you doing? Hey Michael, I'm good, how are you? Good, we are uh, excited to welcome a guest to our show today, BakerBot's partner, Bridget Moore. And Bridget's gonna talk to us about recent SEC enforcement trends, particularly following the fiscal year end for the SEC at the end of September, which always comes with a press of SEC enforcement filings at that
2: deadline. Bridget, thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: Brendan, let's jump in. What are we gonna talk about? Back on October 17th, Ian McGinley, the director of enforcement for the CFTC, announced updated guidance to CFTC staff on uh, a number of areas. Michael, what were the highlights of this guidance?
1: This was a release that was, as you say, issued in on the 17th. There was also a concurrent speech given by the division director, Ian McGinley, on that day, which sort of formally announced it, but also elaborated a bit on the guidance. What was laid out were basically new guidance in three areas. One related to deterring misconduct through penalties, basically indicating that they'll be looking to increase penalty amounts, and we can talk about some of the details shortly here. In addition to that, there was a, a new guidance given regarding corporate monitors and compliance consultants and when those may be utilized in enforcement settlements. And finally, admissions and a, a new guidance, a new written guidance that lays out the factors to be considered when, when the enforcement division will consider admissions and The takeaway is that they are signaling that no longer will (laughs) neither admit nor deny settlements be the default, that admissions will be pursued more
2: aggressively and considered in every matter. So let's talk about maybe take it from the top with the civil monetary penalties and the, the guidance on that. I think you said that we expect those to go up, or at least the guidance says they'll go up. The guidance or Director McGinley's speech provide any kind of detail around what factors they'll be looking at in terms of increasing penalties potentially? Basically,
1: they indicated the guidance indicates that where the division sees similarly situated respondents violating the same laws in in similar ways over time. They are going to consider anew whether higher penalties are necessary in, in the newer cases and not necessarily rely on uh, precedent in the determination of, of penalties. No longer can you look at what the historical pattern is for civil monetary penalties in enforcement matters at the CFTC. It's really a de
2: novo review of what the appropriate penalty is in a particular case. I thought one thing that was interesting to me coming at it from a DOJ perspective was Director McGinley talked about, I think he used the term recidivist, recidivist, looking at recidivism uh, as a factor that they're going to look at. And from a DOJ perspective, you often see that as referring to the same company, whereas he, in his speech, seemed to take a little bit broader look at that and not just look at the same company, but also the same types of conduct. That the CFTC has has penalized in the past, where the CFTC has gone out and taken action in the past for certain types of conduct, the penalties are going to be potentially, at least in, in the guidance, ratcheted up against different actors who engaged um, in similar conduct.
1: Yeah, yeah. And Bridget, you've been following this at the SEC. They've got some similar policies with their no longer new, but their current division director. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, I I think that the neither admit nor deny, the, the push towards admitting was something that came up under Mary Jo White. And I think that what we saw after that was a few companies that were pushed in that direction, but ultimately, continue to see the neither admit nor deny. The collateral consequences for a company for admitting can be severe. And the idea that they can settle and get it past them is something that really can drive settlements for the most part. And taking away that that incentive, I think, really caused concern both with Obviously, the the defense bar, but ultimately with the SEC in terms of you know the, what they'd have to do, the increase in people actually litigating, we've seen it recently. There were some record keeping cases related to off channel communications for regulated entities, and we see we saw an admit in their orders. I think that could, we could we could make some distinctions there from a non regulated, non financial regulated and en- issuer. These are heavily regulated. They are these record-keeping obligations and how they communicate are clear on their face. And so it could have just been a a different situation there that more easily led to this admission, but it's there. And in the press release where the commission is announcing the settlements, they cite to that fact. So certainly bringing it to the attention of the market and to the defense bar that there is a... that type of settlement and that type of requirement from the staff to settle something is still alive and well and will be used in situations that they deem appropriate. On the penalty side of things, I I think that we've heard about the head of enforcement suggesting that precedent shouldn't be necessarily used when we're advocating for our clients during settlements. Uh, You know, in my experience, we, we all still use it. You need a starting point. It's obviously statutory, but you need precedent as to to where you're going to get to in a subtle context. I've used it and it's been helpful, but I I can imagine there's cases, more appropriate cases where the commission may say, we're going to make a point here and specifically not use precedent. And in the press release say, we didn't use precedent here. More to be said on that once we're able to go through releases and see how they track versus prior settlements.
1: There's a lot to unpack there, but in in connection with that last point, and how, at least at the CFTC, it might play out. I think there are a lot of similarities uh, between the two agencies, the CFTC and the, the SEC. So I think we'll see a lot of the same things. But mm-hmm. with respect to penalties and the, the reliance on recidivism as a factor for increasing penalties, it raises some issues too, right? Well, what, is, what does it mean to be a recidivist? Who is a recidivist, right? And, you know, I'll take this to maybe a sort of 30,000-foot level and just say these are the securities and commodity markets are complicated, sophisticated markets that are highly regulated that even the most well-funded and well-intentioned parties can have mistakes, multiple mistakes over time without being a so-called bad actor requiring deterrence. The goal of penalties here is in the CFTC release is to promote specific and general deterrence. And maybe general deterrence is achieved through a big penalty, even where it's not warranted. But specific deterrence for in some circumstances, I, I could argue and have for some clients that where there's identification of a problem and remediation and self-reporting that no penalty is necessary for specific deterrence because the client has done or the company has done everything right. Exactly what it means to be a recidivist is, is going to be, I think, more challenging than the CFTC staff realizes. And unfortunately, it's going to be, I think, difficult for companies in resolution to try and make the case that while they have had a prior Enforcement action, they shouldn't be deemed a recidivist and make the case under the factors that have been laid out.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great point, Michael. I think, and it just shows the sometimes the difficulty of importing uh, principles of uh, criminal prosecution, particularly individual pro- criminal prosecution, into the, the regulatory context, right? In a criminal case, when somebody's a recidivist, particularly an individual, that means they've previously been found to have some type of criminal intent. And uh, here they are again, right? Whereas, particularly in some of these areas like record-keeping failures and things like that, this is, although there have been a spate of both SEC and CFTC record keeping alleged record-keeping failures or settled record-keeping failures actions over the last couple of years, five, six years ago, it was not on anybody's radar screen that, I mean, WhatsApp messages or text messages... Were something that companies, broker dealers, and investment advisors had an obligation to hold on to in the same way that they did, say, emails and things like that. So I think, you know, just to keep this moving along, I think we've talked about two of the three changes to CFTC guidance and the penalty front and on the admissions front. Michael, an- another area that you mentioned was monitors and compliance consultants. There have been monitors in place in CFTC resolutions before. What's changed uh, in this most recent guidance?
1: Yeah, I I don't think there's a whole lot that's new in, in the guidance with respect to monitors and compliance consultants. There is a little bit of additional information in this guidance to differentiate when the commission enforcement staff will consider a monitor that's under a circumstance where they may not have confidence in the party to actually fully remediate the issues. And then some factors of when they might consider a consultant, which is under circumstances where there's an an acknowledgement that the, the company's willing to remediate and has the right culture, but may need assistance in ensuring that those remediation steps get done well. So they've divided the landscape in a way that seems rational. And I I think this does signal that we're more likely to see consideration of a compliance consultant in regular cases and more likely to see consideration of monitors in egregious and significant cases. But this has been something that's been going on for a while and Bridget, the SEC is is similar and that they use independent compliance consultants and anything there of, of note from the, from the SEC?
0: No, I think it tracks what you all were saying with with the CFTC. I, I think you would see them, the, the threat of a, of a monitor was something that we would see in previous administrations. It's certainly something you talk about now. It's very case specific. And in some cases... It, it could even be brought up by the client as something that is helpful for them. They were going to do it anyways and can help on in, in, in other areas of, of what the staff is requiring to settle. But in terms of their the way they look at it, it tracks CFTC.
1: One of the things we've seen as this becomes more prominent is companies taking steps to ensure that if they do run afoul of laws or commission rules that they will not be subjected to a monitor by by taking compliance steps in advance right by focusing on review and enhancement of their compliance program doing conducting in their own voluntary compliance review to double-check it, make sure it's reasonably designed and well-resourced and covers the issues that need to be covered. And in that way, if there is a problem... You start from the, a more credible position that, based on the guidance that was issued by the CFTC, would likely take you out of a monitor situation and put you at a minimum into a consultant situation. That's something that a practical step that, that companies can take away from this, that if you want to avoid a monitor or even a consultant, if you're credible on compliance and you focus on compliance before you get into trouble, that could potentially weigh in your favor as
2: you, as you negotiate with the enforcement staff. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? Just shifting topics a bit here, and we've talked a little bit about some of the SEC actions at the year end, but the SEC and the CFTC's fiscal year ended on September 30th. As in the past, there was a sharp uptick in a number of enforcement actions. As the fiscal year came to a close, I even saw one column uh, sarcastically suggesting that the SEC was engaged in, quote, earnings management, unquote, which is obviously something the SEC takes, looks uh, uh, scan at when companies are alleged to have d- done it. But in all seriousness, the fiscal year, the end of the fiscal year rush often provides some insight into what the SEC Enforcement Division is focused on and you know what folks in-house and in compliance roles should be focused on. Bridget, what did you see in, in surveying the end of the year SEC actions? What stood out to you?
0: Yeah, so you would saw the continuation of what you saw through the balance of the year, and which is the sweet spot, which is the reporting and disclosure cases. And you know, while those are something that are, again, their bread and butter, what we what saw this year and what we saw at the end of the year was the fact that there was the the cases where there was no individual also charged were few and far between. So the the commission's stance that's very public on individuals taking accountability was certainly illustrated through the enforcement settlements that that were published this year and certainly at the end of the year. We also saw uh, a, a focus on sweeps and so and and the end of the year what was publicized and what kind of came in September were two sweeps, one of which was, is related to the SEC's focus on reporting trades for those uh, officers and directors within uh, companies that are required to file Form 4s. Uh, so they are, they're designated an officer or a director who falls into that category. So you have Form 4s. But then you also have what are called Schedule 13Ds and 13Gs that once a once an individual reaches a certain threshold of stock ownership needs to be uh, updated. So the SEC, as they often do with their sweeps, um, they uh, were able through data analytics to collect information on what they believe to be late filings. Sent out, you know, a significant number of letters um, where companies were able to explain why something either was not late or the reason why it was late and as a result of that we saw some enforcement actions and i think they are instructive for both individuals and companies because what we saw was the both were charged in some cases individuals if they were if they took on the responsibility for the filing and the companies if they had taken on the responsibility for the filing for the individual and and dropped the ball if you will So we'll see a continued increase, I think, on the focus of that. So in making sure that the procedures are in place, what we find for the most part is that the form fours that are late are because somebody, the individual thought there was a miscommunication or there was a drop off in, in the procedure that would require the filing because it's a pretty easy thing to do. So it really usually came down to just making sure that there was a, there is a you know, a process in place and that everybody is educated on that process to get those filings in on time. We've certainly saw situations and even this year where clients got letters explained why something was late and the SEC went away. Now that there's enforcement actually associated with it, it it'll be interesting to see going forward if the SEC just takes a hard line because people are on notice now that they're they are they're taking these positions. So we'll see.
1: Yeah. So Bridget, just on that point, just as a practical matter, it's there's enforcement exposure associated with it. But as you say, it's not a difficult thing to handle, or at least it shouldn't be with a little bit of focus in this practical standpoint. Is it just about making sure those obligations are clearly laid out in policies or procedures, or at least communicated internally in an effective way?
0: Yes, absolutely. And, and it, get, it can get a little tricky, where you'll have an individual who has a a broker or an advisor who executes trades and there can be maybe a, a miscommunication there so taking a step back looking at who you're, who the individuals within your company who have to file you know how they work in the space and making sure that there's an understanding with all players that the 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 road to the filing starts with them raising their hand and saying, we've, we've executed a trade and now we have to require a a form 4. I really feel like it's making sure that you can have the policies and procedures, but making sure that all individuals involved in kind of the process, know when to raise their hand, who needs to raise their hand and who they're supposed to report to. That's really where the breakdown is.
2: Makes sense. Anything else, Bridget, that we think is noteworthy trends from the SEC's end of year settlements?
0: Yeah, so there one interesting and we haven't seen it um, in, in a while. Obviously, whistleblowers are something that we spend a lot of time thinking about. The SEC makes sure to to publicize when they give a whistleblower award, and, and whistleblowers are are a have become something that the that enforcement relies on and they're very clear about that. But what we saw at the end of the, this year was a settlement related to separation agreements. Uh, with employees. And, you know, that was an issue, gosh, it's been years now. And so once that settlement came out years ago that you couldn't put restrictive or what looked to be restrictive language, like you can't speak to any third parties about, you know, about uh, your work here, had to be caveated with except you can report out to government agencies or however they uh, would explain that. So it was a throwback to that. And, the SEC took kind of pains in the settlement order to, to set out the language that they found was the offending language and how it connected. So we can assume that the company was making the argument that, no, we have clarifying language somewhere else, or that doesn't mean what you think it means. So the SEC kind of went to great pains saying, if you read these two things together, these two separate sections, it would suggest that the employees' hands were tied. So it, it's an interesting, it's an interesting read. The SEC points out that in 2015, the company tried to remedy the language by putting in some language that suggested that the agreement was limited in nature and and the employee could report out, but the way it was written could be read as perspective. So really suggesting that still you couldn't have reported in the past. And so the SEC didn't find that was enough. So it's a good reminder and a good reminder to go back and look at your, your separation agreements. To make sure that they're clear that in signing it, the employee's hands are not tied. Yeah, so that, and, and, that was kind of an interesting throwback one.
1: And Bridget, that that lesson from that case is also a good opportunity for companies to think about you know or ensure that hey their people understand this obligation, right, and are looking for other agreements where that they're signing with employees that may have confidentiality obligations attached to them to ensure that they're not picking up some form agreement from, from years ago that, that is not properly drafted to ensure that it doesn't preclude the type of employee <clears throat> whistleblowing reporting. Yeah, that, yeah. No, that's,
0: that's yeah. right. And that's a good point and kind of underscores what I think what the SEC was trying to tell us in that settlement, which is you have to read it all together. You have to make sure that even though if you think one section you know, covers the obligations, that another doesn't impact negatively what you were trying to to come across. So reading everything together, making sure that one document doesn't contradict the other document is something that's worth doing.
2: Yeah. And even in a couple of settlements that we saw at the end of this fiscal year, they were both separation agreements and employment agreements. And you know, obviously there are other ki- kinds of confidentiality agreements that we've seen that come up in the employment context. I think that's about it for this edition. We've covered quite a bit. Thanks to Michael for providing us with your insights on the new CFTC policies, and and Bridget for going through the SEC's highlights from their year end enforcement. We look forward to another edition of the Energy Enforcement Insider Podcast next month. Thank you again.
0: Baker Bot's LLP provides podcasts for educational purposes only. They are not legal advice and are not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship. This communication may constitute attorney advertising.